This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's cracking, beer lovers? What up? What's going on? That was take two. I messed yeah. up the first <laughs> one. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, these things happen. Yeah. Um, we, so Cullen bought beer for tonight. For like the first time in forever. For Clayton's been like buying it. Yeah. Well, cause I'm, it's easier for me to get out. Like I don't have kids, right? Yeah. It's easier for me to get out and go get it. But what he got for today, we decided to split and we've only done this one other time. Have we split a beer? Yeah. And both of them have been from St. Arnold's. The first one. That is true. Both of them have been from St. Arnold's. I think we talked about this last week. Um, but we um, split the Pumpkinator um, back whenever it was still out. Mm-hmm. And this one is the I Love You This Much. Um, it is a Commitment Imperial Stout with an, a raspberry adjunct. Yeah. Um, it's also 12.8%. So That's why we're splitting it. <laughs> That's why we're splitting it. Um, it's a full pint. You don't want to drink a full pint of 12.8%. You would be throwed. You um, would be pretty lit. But... Um, I am, I've smelled it cause I wanted to smell it and get the aromatics before we came up here with the candle. I smell in our amazing Elijah rise, Elijah rising tobacco uh, and cedar candle. It's a fantastic candle. I love the smell of it, but now it does hinder your ability to smell beer crisp. Yeah. Like I can still smell the raspberry on it, but I also smell the cedar. Yeah. <laughs> so like you smell it. That raspberry is pretty... It's pretty forward. Pretty pronounced. And, like, right behind it is this, like, rich chocolatey, like, dark chocolate, not milk yeah, chocolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It smells fantastic. It does smell really nice. Uh, I'm pretty excited. I just have... So, I, I just... Like I said, I don't drink much craft beer anymore. I drink a lot in college. Yeah. Um, I just don't drink a whole lot anymore, and... So when Clayton, I was out running some errands today and Clayton was like, Hey, can you stop and get beer for PMP? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I stopped in and I was like, I don't know, let me just take a gander. And I was, I was feeling kind of creative. Did you go to HEB? Yeah. Okay. I was feeling kind of like, you know, I wanted to try something different and I almost got a goes. Um, mm. I was going to go sour routes. I, you know, I was kind of all over the place and then I saw that and Shout out. It smells really good. It smells fantastic. Uh, we haven't tried it yet, but um, it was also like $12 for the bottle. Right. And so I was like, well, I know what St. Arnold's normal stuff is at, you know, $2 a bottle or something for 12 It's better be. It better be good. Right. And it's going to be like, I better have, be pumpkinator good. Yeah. Yeah. I have full faith that it's going to taste amazing. Right. Well, let's see. Let's do it. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Oh, yeah. It's different, right? It's not. It is very different. Um, You should not be expecting a Guinness here, right? You should not be expecting anything close to a normal stout. The the raspberry gives it this acidic sharpness that I love. Yeah. But it's softened by that chocolate. Yeah, I was fixing to say this super high Lovabon stout has all this like chocolate flavor in it, and it ends up being really sweet. I don't see. It's got a bit of like tartness from the raspberries too, but like 
plus there's like um, some other hops happening in here too, right? So I'm not sure what it is, but um, I think that mixed with the raspberry adjunct is, I'm not going to say it's too sweet. I actually think it's perfectly balanced. Yeah, I didn't say it's too sweet. I said it is sweet. Yeah, I think it's perfectly balanced. For for a stout though, I I like chocolate stouts. I like milk stouts. I like mm. stouts that are a bit on the sweeter side sometimes. Yeah. Um I don't really like like pretzel stouts. I don't like any stouts that are chewy or anything like that. It. I love it. <laughs> yeah, no. I'm not I'm not there for super heavy like grain stouts. This is fantastic though. This yeah, I think it's fantastic. very good. I think it's very um, good. I think it, I, I don't think I can put it over the Pumpkinator, but it's a solid number two. The Pumpkinator is pretty. It is just superb. Yeah, it's it's pretty hard to beat. Um, that's also why it's won awards. <laughs> yeah, it's superb. That one's, that one's pretty good, though. It is pretty I'm, good. I'm very pleased with it. I, I am, too. I'm not. Um. It's not my favorite beer in the world. Yeah. Right. Um, definitely a good one. It is also, what did we say? 12, 12.8. So almost 13% ABV. You don't want to drink this every day. No. Well, it's, it's also, got, it's got that alcohol flavor in it the, too. So I actually can't find that ethanol layer as much. Maybe it's just because I'm used to like cash strength whiskey. Yeah. So like, I don't, I don't find that. Um, well, I only say it because it's got that same kind of flavor that the um, one twenty minute dogfish head has. Oh, that kind of like lingering ethanol yeah. thing on the back end. Yeah. And it's like it does have that. Really flavor. potent beers have that, and yeah. so I can I can taste that. I don't hate that mm-hmm. at all, but just that combination of things. It's got it's got some some evolution to it. There. Yeah, it's it's definitely. It's not like you're knocking back the extra stout from no. Guinness. Like you get one flavor pretty much all the way through. It's nothing. It is much more complex than that. Yeah, it's it's definitely evolving, right? Like the first thing you get is the sharpness from the raspberry. The raspberries are in your face right out it's of the just, gate. It's very sharp and and kind of bitter, right? A, t- a tart. T- well, tartness and bitter, right? Yeah. Like they're different, but. I would say that there is a tartness and a bitterness. Yeah, right? I get more tart than bitter. But I do yeah. too. But like you get a little bit of both. Um, and then it develops into this sweet, soft chocolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that transition is nice too. It, it is because it's like from one end to the other, right? Yeah. It's just like this pendulum swing in your mouth. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of develops into the malt and, and yeah. a hint of the hops on the back end with that little ethanol layer. Yes. Um, yes. You you fully agree with my yes. palette there? Yep. 100% agree with the development, the evolution, and the ethanol kind of finish. I'm, there's nothing I would change. I, I, I do get, I don't think you gave enough credit to the sweetness in the transition. That transition from that tart bitterness of the raspberries and the hops to that high roasted Love of chocolate flavor. Yeah. That transition, and maybe it's because it's coming from something so tart and bitter, right. but like that transition hits me really sweet, and then it mellows. I don't think I would totally disagree. It's just I don't think it's all that sweet, right? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm going more dark chocolate, which has this like bitter cacao. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. So no, I get that. I just I only eat dark chocolate. Like I don't eat mm-hmm. milk chocolate, and I don't so really either. I'm really aware of like how good quality dark chocolate is. Also, really sweet. It can be. Uh, can be like if you get these really high quality dark chocolates that are expensive and no one should ever buy, but I can't seem to stop. <laughs> They are really sweet. They can be. I the dark chocolate that I prefer generally tends to have uh, higher levels of cacao in them. Yeah, right. Yeah, so they yeah. are bitter. Yeah. Um, are we chocolate nerds now? Like, I what guess is so. this? I don't know. We're eight and nine minutes into this um, podcast, and we've not even talked about theology yet. But it's okay. It's pints and pints and perspectives we talk about you know our perspective changes based on how many pints we've had (laughs) (laughs) just kidding i I do feel like i should be like thor in the marvel movies like after i finish this another (laughs) 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 like it's that good like it is good i will i will will buy it again i'm glad that we don't have any more though yeah because if we had more i'd want to drink more and i'm not trying i don't need any more 13 percent abv that no, sir. Half a one is more than enough. Yeah. Um, anyways, we are now 10 minutes in. So narrative theology. Yes. The that theology tra- of narrative. That transition is as smooth as the spirit. <laughs> like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the beer is much smoother than that transition. Yeah, um, yeah so I want to keep going with narrative theology. You know, I've done a little bit with it. Up to this point, once again, I said it last week, and and here we are two weeks in. I've not gotten one piece of negative feedback about narrative theology. I haven't either. Um, So, once again, we're going to keep rolling with it. If you have qualms, feel free to reach out on Instagram. Like, you can let me know, but, like, I have not gotten one piece of negative feedback. I think that people are craving something like this, though, right? Um, well, it's, so it's not unique to me. I didn't make it no, up. No, no, no. Yeah. I know, I know, I know. But like, I'm just saying that there are people. But it's not very well talked about, right? In, in, in our tradition, yeah, yeah, it's just not very well talked about. In post liberal traditions, it's really talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because what happened was like you had like Protestant liberalism come up with like Schleiermacher and right. and these kind of guys like Paul Tillich, and these guys are like you know, Jesus might've been a person kind of people. And they definitely denounce miracles. Yeah. Like Protestant liberals do not think miracles are a thing. And so, but like people, they got there because they were running from fundamentalism, like true fundamentalism. It's like science and the Bible contradict. Mm. And so I'm choosing the Bible. That's fundamentalist. Yeah. And once again, not a pejorative, just the way we talk about that category of people. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you so find simple. yourself in that category, but you don't like calling yourself fundamentalist, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to upset you. That's just what you... That's the category that you're Academically, in. that's how we categorize you. Yeah. So, but when they still wanted to run from this, but this, like, Protestant liberalism wasn't sufficient, we tried to go with moderates. Right. And moderates worked for a while... And I think it still works for a lot of people. And I think maybe I would just be a left-leaning moderate. It's probably how it is. And so I want to take 
post-liberal. So those are the people that said, hey, look, I don't want to be anything near mm. Protestant liberalism. Yeah. But like the moderates didn't quite come far enough for me. Yeah. Like I need this, I need this to go just a touch closer over here. That's probably where I am. And so that's why narrative theology, which is a post-liberal theology, right. appeals to me. So what did I say last time the narrative that the Bible is trying to tell is? You tried to say that, um, and I'm going to butcher it, but essentially the idea that the, the narrative that the Bible is trying to tell is God's love for humanity. Yeah. I just wanted a place to drink my beer. And so okay. I needed you to say that. Okay. What, what I actually said was that the narrative the Bible is trying to tell us is that God had an intense, deep love for humanity such that he built a place that he could be in fellowship with us. We screwed it up. And the rest of the story is telling us how God is trying to reconcile us and the world to himself. That's the entire narrative. Yeah. Okay. So now I've gotten the narrative. I know that's the story is trying to tell me. Right. If that's the meta narrative, then how do I use narrative theology to fill in the gaps? Okay. Well, I've got my big narrative. And so now I can use my veins of narrative to fill in the holes. So in that story, what are, what are some things I'm confident of? I'm confident that in some capacity, somehow, unbeknownst to me, God created the world. Right. Not sure how. Don't have all the details. And if anybody claims to know exactly what happened, you might want to like sit back for a minute and start questioning some things because like yeah there are good arguments on both sides of this like yeah on both sides of creation and the yeah. how it happened there are good arguments yeah and so I'm confident in that sure I'm confident in God's love for humanity I'm confident in that I'm confident that we screwed it up somehow yeah we screwed it up I'm confident in that. but I'm ultimately confident in the person of Jesus. Hmm. Well, I think this kind of goes back to like our first few episodes about the creeds, right? We are confident in, in the, in how God interacts in the world. Yes. And we are confident in, you know, for example, for example, um, the virgin birth, right? Mm -hmm. We are, we are confident in, the institution that God has set up as the church. Yes. Right. And that's where we get tradition um, and all those sorts of things. And we are confident that that story is told in scripture. Right. I think that it goes back yes. to all of those things. Yes, I agree. And I'm very much so given over to Carl Barth in this idea <sighs> that the ultimate revelation of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Yes. Like Jesus Messiah is the ultimate revelation of God. Yeah. And so, therefore, I also believe, I'm also confident that in some way, I don't know all the details, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, 
But in some way, Jesus himself is coming back to earth to reunite heaven and earth the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. I am confident in those four things. So now, if I'm confident in those four things, I can use those in the pieces of narrative theology that I am confident in to cross-check things I'm unsure about. So, in that narrative that God created the world so that he can be in fellowship with humanity, humanity screwed it up, and the rest of the story is God trying to reconcile it back to himself— in that narrative, in that meta-narrative, and the things that we've talked about that we're confident in, what's something that you think fits somewhat adjacently to that meta-narrative that I didn't say I'm confident in that you go, yeah, maybe I'm not so sure how this fits in? Uh, I would go with the Omnis, right? That's where I would point. Um, well, I- so would you say the that, omnis actually, f- no, I mean like from the Bible, like oh, okay. s- something that's happened in the narrative I of see, scripture. I, I went the other direction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, something that happened in the narrative of scripture that I'm not sure how it fits into the character of God or to the overall narrative. Yeah. How uh, to the overall narrative. Canaanite conquest nec- narratives. I was hoping you'd go there. Great. So why didn't it fit for you? Exactly the reason we've been saying for a long time, the violence is disturbing. Yes, so the violence in the Canaanite Conquest narratives is disturbing. and for But for me, so he, here's what I want to say. Narrative theology is not the, it, it shouldn't be a tool where we can just go, hey, I found something that makes me uncomfortable, I'm going to just throw it out. Yeah. In it's, the name of narrative theology. It, it's not an eraser. No, it's not. It's a tool to build litmus tests for. Yep. So why do the Canaanite conquest bo- narrative, Canaanite conquest narratives bother me so much? They bother me because remember the ultimate revelation of God is found Jesus. in the person of Jesus Christ. In your opinion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my opinion, in the ultimate revelation of God, God's a pacifist. Yeah. Jesus is not screwing around drawing up wars. He's not fighting people. Not killing anyone. Excuse me. He stands silent before his accusers. He takes beating after beating after beating. And in fact, he sticks up for the people (laughs) who are murdering him. Yeah. And then he dies the most humiliating death. Yep. I am confident in that picture of God and that picture of God leads to restoration. Hmm. Why do the Canaanite conquest narratives bother me? Because they are the exact opposite of that narrative. Yeah. So now I'm torn. What do I do with these? Because now I've got a narrative. I've got a narrative that I'm confident in. Yeah. I've got sub points of that narrative that I'm confident in. Those are very powerful points throughout the narrative. But now I've got a big chunk of the narrative, the narrative of Scripture, that seems like it should fit, right? That whole image of the land in the Old Testament, Mm. we've got to do something with that. Mm -hmm. Because remember in Judges, I didn't ever get a chance to talk about this, but remember after all the Judges rule and it says, and there was peace for X amount of years, whatever? 
Notice it didn't say, and Israel had peace for 40 years. Mm. You remember what it did say? Mm-mm. And there was peace in the land. In the land. Oh, my God. For 40 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there is something about the land. Like, and I can't just ignore whatever that peace is about the land. I've got to come back to that. Because once again, remember, there's a whole thing about the land I'll give to you. And then Moses, or sorry, Abraham buys that little plot of it to right. bury Sarah. Like, there, there's a whole deal there about the land. The land matters somehow. Yeah. So I can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. But what I can go is, hey, the way that you got the land, I'm not so sure that reflects the character of God. Because mm. remember, also, it's not like, now it would also be heretical for you to say this, that that God is somehow wholly other in the New Testament than right. he is in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that God can't develop or or change the way he manifests himself or any of those kinds of things. But like to say that that change happened within God is historically heretical. Yeah. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Right. Except. Yeah. Except when he's not. not. Yeah. We're going to have to talk about that. The impassibility piece is like, we're going to have to talk about that, but (sighs) for me, I can look at this and go, Okay, one of these doesn't belong. Mm. And it's not even like it, I can jump to the New Testament and go, this is somehow other, this is a different kind of God. Because God is displeased with the violence in the Old Testament with Noah in Genesis 6. Like that's what he calls the corruption is the violence and the evil. Mm-hmm. To some extent the violence of the gangbang in Genesis 19 is also problematic. I mean, there's so many places we can point to in the narrative where we go, violence is not the answer. Yep. And yet the story tells us that God commissioned the violence. violence. Why do I have a problem with the Canaanite conquest narratives? Because they clearly don't reflect the character of God. In my interpretation, in my mind. Yeah. Why can I confidently say that? Because the narrative the Bible's telling. That it's something different. Shows me that it's something different. Yeah. That's why I have struggles too, right? And and I, I know that we're not the only two sitting in this room that are thinking that, right? Nope. Um, I'm sure a good portion of our listeners if not all of them, have these the same question. Yes. Um, I have heard an argument that um, it was because God was trying to accomplish something different then than he is now. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's a good argument, right? I mean, it's not a bad one. Yeah, that's so it's not fallacious. No, um, but like I don't think that it's, it doesn't, it still doesn't answer the question for me that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever except for when he's not. Yeah. And how can the ultimate revelation of Jesus be be teaching something totally different than this? Yeah, that's the deal is it for me it's the Jesus piece. If I didn't have all the stuff I have about Jesus, if all I had about Jesus was John 1 hmm. and the crucifixion or sorry, passion week 
and resurrection. If that's all I had about Jesus, okay. Yeah. Maybe. Honestly, if that's all we had of Jesus, I would be a very different person. Oh, yeah. How I lived my life would be very different. Oh, yeah, me too. I would not be in social work. Yeah, because we wouldn't have all that stuff where Jesus says, I know you've heard, but I say. Yeah. We wouldn't have all that stuff. Yep. But because we have all that stuff, and I am confident that the ultimate revelation of God is found in the person of Jesus, I have to cross-check all these things in the narrative Hmm. against Jesus. And I look at the narrative and the narrative that's being told. And for whatever reason, the Canaanite conquest narratives, they do not fit for me. Yeah. And so what do, what do you do in these situations when you come to this? A post-liberal, a true post-liberal, which I do not profess to be, would just be like, screw it. They're not worth it. They're not worth your time reading. Like just throw them out. That That's might that might be an oversimplification. Yeah, but, a little bit. But really, they they don't feel the need to do anything with it. It's just like I don't. I can't make sense of it, so I'm not going to deal with it. Yeah, when they get to this point, it's like I'm out. Yeah, I'm just like I don't have I don't I, I don't have an answer, so I'm just going to skip over. Narrative it. Right. theology for them is the tool to determine what I need to read and what I need to ignore. Right. Me trying to be more moderate, I'm not there for that. I still need to do something with it. Mm-hmm. So what do I do with it? Here's what I do with it. The people of faith were very confident that God had promised them the land. There are lots of times in my life where I felt like God has promised me something. And I did some really stupid things chasing the promise and said they were done in the name of God or that God told me to do them. Once you get to the place where you can get rid of inerrancy or you choose to get rid of inerrancy, you can also arrive at the place where you say, hey, the Israelite leaders, the people writing this down, the people remembering the stories, they're all fallen and broken people too. They may have just gotten it wrong. What if they just got it wrong? What if they said, hey, I really feel like God said this. Yeah. And so somebody wrote it down as God said, kill man, woman, and child. And actually, that's just not it at all. Or somebody thinking that it was a good idea said that God said that so that it would happen. Right? Like, we have to remember, and we say this all the time. The Bible is written for us, not to us. Correct. And the Bible is also written by fallen humans. Um, we did, with the inspiration of God. With the inspiration of God. It is written God. by fallen humans. We do not, here at Will House, affirm mechanical dictation. Therefore. I, there are not many of those people left. There's not very many people that, that do that are left. You're, In you the are words correct. of Andrew Barrett, there are not many of you left. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there are not many of them there, left. There's not. Uh, there are they still do exist, but they're few and far between. Yeah, I don't um, know where they maybe I've functionally. Met I've met a couple. Okay, and so bro, that's like, an interesting but, conversation. But they wouldn't. Like, but would they like explicitly affirm that, or would like just their functionality and the way they believe tell you that they affirm that? 
One of them I know would because he was knowledgeable enough to know that that's what it's called. And he was like, yeah, uh, no shame. Dang. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are not many of you left. <laughs> There's not many of them left. That is true. But we also don't affirm mechanical we don't. dictation. We don't. Not even a little bit. So when you put all this together. Well, so before that, let me let me just jump in here about mechanical dictation okay. real quick. We need to talk about that in yeah, depth. So just real quick, if you choose to affirm mechanical dictation. This is not a shot. No, it's not. You have a faulty God. If you choose mechanical dictation, you have also chosen to say that God is faulty. Because when you read this narrative, you will find contradictions. It is not 100% accurate to itself. Even in the history. Yeah. When you're reading histories side by side in Chronicles and Kings or wherever you're reading, like you will find contradictions. If you subscribe to mechanical dictation theory, you have a flawed God. Cohen said that. Yeah, yeah, I said that. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with him on that, but... um, If God chose to take over and dictate what was written down, and it's been perfectly preserved... I agree with you that... Oh, so you do agree. (laughs) Hold on. I agree with you that there are contradictions... And that there are some things in there that are just not reconcilable. But the people who would affirm mechanical dictation theory would not say that that's the same thing. They would say that there is a way to work it out. I mean, we read the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, right? And they don't affirm dictation theory. But um, what did they even say? There is not yet a way to understand this. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... I just think the byproduct of believing, because that's the deal. People only think about their belief in in the isolated box of what problem they're trying to solve and not in what problems they're creating. And I just (laughs) legit think like if you affirm mechanical dictation, like the byproduct of that is that God is flawed because the Bible is flawed. Yeah, we we already talked about the Bible (laughs) in depth. Like we're not doing this again. No, we're not. Um, The point is, Narrative theology creates a space for you to have solid answers on things. Some. On some things. Some things. And I was going there. Now, there are some other things that you have trouble with, Mm -hmm. right? But when you come to these points like the Canaanite conquest narratives, Mm -hmm. one, you already have to have given up. If you affirm narrative theology, you've already had to give up inerrancy. So it's easy for you to say, maybe the author just got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a fine place to be. And if that's where you fall, okay. Yeah. And don't let anyone ever tell you. You can engage in conversation. Mm -hmm. You can engage in debate. But don't let anyone ever tell you that you're a heretic for saying that maybe the author just got it wrong. Because... That's a valid point. It is. And lots of scholars agree with that point. Probably majority of scholars. At, at this, this point, point yeah. majority. Yeah. Because so, once again, remember, inerrancy is only an American thing. Yeah. No, that's true. Or the people we've reached. Yeah, that's true. Um, Nobody in the UK would affirm that. No. That's not like 
American or American adjacent. Yeah. So it, it's okay for you to say, maybe the author just got it wrong. Now, don't throw it out entirely. Yeah. Because it is, it's still there. Yeah. It is still the the most literal translation of First Timothy, the God, the the God breathed word, right? Mm-hmm. So you still have to do something with it. And if you have these questions and you want to deal with it, and you're just not sure how, reach out to us. Mm-hmm. We will have these conversations. If you're in our area, we'll go have a beer. We'll talk about it. We'll have a yep. real live pints of perspective session with you right yep absolutely um the the one caveat i want to do here because i i do think we're going to call it on narrative theology at the end of this episode um i'm not 100 percent sure but i'm pretty sure i'm not superstitious but i'm a little stitious <laughs> i think the most important thing if you are going to practice narrative theology the single most important thing you can do is find your control group. Mm. You have to figure out what it is for you that you are confident in. Yeah. And everything has to be measured against what you are confident in. I, I have given you where I am. Yep. That I am confident that the Bible is telling a singular narrative that God loved humanity so much that he wanted a place where we could be in genuine, perfect fellowship. We screwed it up, and the rest of the story is God trying to fix it. I am also confident that the ultimate revelation of the character of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Yep. I measure everything off of those two things. Those are my control group. And honestly... If it doesn't fit into the primary narrative of God loving humanity and wanting a place to dwell with us, sometimes I don't even care. What do you mean? Like, so what's some arbitrary theological argument? Women are less than. (laughs) No, because I care about that one. Give me one I don't care about. Um, arbitrary argument. Um, one that you truly care about. No, one I don't. One that care you don't about. truly care. About? I don't know. Um, um I, I want to say creation, right? Like that's a. Well, I kind of care about that one because it exactly. involves like God making a place for humanity, right? Um, I, I don't know. Um, oh, the charismatic gifts. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Could not care less how you feel about the charismatic gifts. No, I know how I feel about them. Yep. But could not care less how you feel. Why? Because none of them. Yeah. Like literally none of them are exclusively used for filling in the meta narrative. Yep. No, that's that's fair. Uh, the charismatics might disagree with you. Oh, they might. That, they but might. But I'm charismatic adjacent. So yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think I'm, me too. Like, I got I got one foot in. I, I, I got like one foot in the I'm door. I'm charismatic adjacent. I like. Yeah, that. I, I would. I had a friend in, in grad school tell me that uh, he goes to the vineyard and he was like, "I'm surrounded with all these charismatics with their seatbelts on," <laughs> and I was like. <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. That's and, me. And then yeah. Ben, and then Ben was in this conversation. He goes, they're not drinking the full Budweiser. They're Bud Light. 
this is charismatic light. And I was like, yeah, that's me too. That's me too. A charismatic light. Charismatic light. Oh my yeah. gosh. So I, I don't know, just any of those like arbitrary theological arguments that don't pertain to the meta narrative or to the ultimate revelation of Jesus. Yeah. Like they just become so less important to me. Yeah. Because I know the main story. I know my control group. I know what's happening. And so for me, why do I care so much about women? Because it fits because, in. because it fits into the story. God created them male and female. Yeah. In his image, he created them equally in Genesis 1. Yeah. That's not lost on me. That's a part of the narrative. That's a part of the meta-narrative of the scriptures. It is the beginning of the meta-narrative. Correct. And so why do women matter to me? Why does human trafficking matter to me? Because it's about the humanity that God was trying to be in fellowship with. Yeah. No matter where you end up on this conversation or idea, you are going to have to find a control group. Yep. Feel free to steal mine. Yeah, that's fine. Or feel free to find your own. But whatever you do, get your control group from the Bible. Yes. First and foremost, your control group needs to come from the Bible, something that you are confident in, the character of God, mm. and that becomes the thing by which you measure everything else. And in measuring, you get the freedom to contextualize your experience of faith and formation based upon what you see in Scripture about the character of God and who He's calling you to be to have the freedom to say, this is who I see God as, and I can be 100% confident in who God has revealed himself to me right 